Greetings, this is podcast number 56 of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Hawk from TheRationalRadical.com, www.TheRationalRadical.com. Today, we're going to zoom out to a worldwide perspective on economic justice. Let's get right into it. I recently read a story about how global trade talks collapsed without any agreement to make things fairer for the poor nations of the world, which was the ostensible reason for the meeting. That led me to think I've never really done a podcast about global class warfare, the international dimension of the right-wing war against the poor. Some of you may have heard talk of the World Bank, the IMF, structural adjustment programs, world trade conferences, and the like and not had a handle on what these things were or how they were relevant to progressive activism. This podcast will give you at least a basic idea. The third world poor suffer a quadruple whammy, a four-pronged attack on their livelihoods and very lives themselves. One of these prongs we've already touched on in previous podcasts the sweetheart contracts between corrupt third world governments and foreign multinationals that allow third world natural resource wealth to be plundered. The other three elements of the right-wing attack are unfair conditions of international trade, the making of dubious loans to corrupt third world governments, and the imposition of misery and death-inducing conditions upon third world nations as a prerequisite to further assistance. My sources are articles, editorials, and letters to the editor in the New York Times, articles published on CommonDreams.org from Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, Focus on the Global South, and 50 Years is Enough, the website of the United Nations Development Program, articles published in The Guardian, a United Kingdom paper, The Brookings Institution, an interview published in New Internationalist Magazine, in Carter, the online encyclopedia, and the website of the JFK School of Government at Harvard. Here's one thing that's critical to remember throughout this podcast. When I speak of the third world poor, I'm not talking about people whose poverty requires them to drive a 10-year-old car or who can't afford a big-screen TV. I'm talking about people who are malnourished, without proper medical care, or even any medical care at all, often without potable water. Their children die because they don't have enough money to buy adequate food supplies or pay for necessary medical care. So the poverty we're discussing here is life and death level. Oh yes, one other thing. Our last podcast was more a fun thing, with us listening to clip after clip of delusional right-wingers. This week, we'll be dealing mostly with my presenting to you facts and figures. A bit drier, but critically important. And just think, with these new understandings you'll have after listening to this podcast, you'll be able to recognize even a deeper dimension to the right-wingers' delusions whenever you hear them speak. So first, sweetheart deals. 
This is the most straightforward way the Western world rips off the third world. Multinationals take ownership of resource extraction operations, pay an obscenely low royalty rate to the local government, and avoid paying to the local government even the pitifully small amount of taxes that are due on their profits. The lack of adequate income from royalties and taxes means, of course, that the people of that nation are shortchanged in all the types of government services they are entitled to. This situation occurs, of course, only when the third world government is ruling in the interests of the multinationals and the elite slice of the local population that collaborates with them. When the third world government is ruling in the interests of the majority of its citizens, well then, things are different. Such can be illustrated by what Hugo Chavez is doing in Venezuela and Evo Morales is doing in Bolivia. In Venezuela, the government is requiring that a majority stake be owned by the government in its oil operations. It is raising the royalty rates and collecting back taxes owed. This will raise tens of billions of additional dollars. That money rightly belongs to hungry, poorly housed, sick without medical care Venezuelans. In Bolivia, similarly, contracts with multinationals are being renegotiated with the government acquiring a majority stake and royalty rates being raised. Again, the extra revenue will be used to help those who have the right to it. Impoverished Bolivians without adequate food, water, shelter, medical care, or any of the other necessities of life. Check out Podcast 36 for more on Venezuela and Bolivia ending sweetheart deals. Let's go on to the next aspect of right-wing global class warfare, unfair conditions of international trade. Rich nations hold a huge comparative advantage in items like industrial goods and services. Poor countries, all other things being equal, would hold a comparative advantage in agricultural goods and textiles. So what's happened since World War II? International trade agreements have removed barriers against trade in industrialized goods and services, which means that the rich nations can freely market these items in poor nations. But global trade agreements have not done anywhere near as much to dismantle trade barriers on agricultural goods and textiles, which means the poor nations cannot easily market these items of theirs in rich nations. Indeed, the wealthy nations of the world spend nearly $1 billion a day subsidizing their farmers. The result? Overproduction which drives down prices and makes the farmers in poor nations unable to sell their products even at home, let alone abroad, as the cheap agricultural products flood the third world nation's markets at prices below the local farmers' production costs. Under the North American Free Trade Agreement, for example, heavily subsidized U.S. corn flooded the Mexican market and drove something like two million Mexican corn farmers out of business, creating a massive pool of unemployed which has increased the flow of desperate, undocumented workers entering the United States. These agricultural subsidies, of course, cannot exactly be considered part of the free market that the right-wingers demand all the time. When it doesn't suit their needs, the free market be damned. 
Just this week, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, global trade talks intended to help the world's poor by granting them access to world markets and the chance to compete collapsed. Quote, It's easy to shrug off this week's collapse of global trade talks. Amid the killing in Iraq and Lebanon, a war of words over de minimis subsidies and amber box payments seems esoteric at best. But the damage to the world's poorest countries, which will now be denied their promised access to global markets and a chance to compete, will be enormous. So will be, and should be, the resentment towards the world's richest countries. Much of that blame ought to be directed at Europe and the United States, which again decided that the political clout of their farm lobbies outweighed their leaders' repeated promises to do more to end global poverty. Brazil and India, which claim to be champions of the poorest, didn't help by refusing to pry open their growing markets. Close quote. Yes, sometimes supposedly progressive leaders like Brazil's Lula don't follow progressive policies. Same in the U.S. Bill Clinton's pro-NAFTA and similar trade policies were not progressive at all. Remember, He's a founding member of the Democratic Leadership Council, the pro-corporate wing of the Democratic Party. Okay, the Western developed nations rip off the natural resources of third world countries and impose unfair, one-sided trade barriers. Let's go on to the third whammy against the third world poor. First world banks lend huge sums of money to corrupt dictators and military juntas knowing that the funds are not being used to benefit the people of those nations. Quite the opposite. The funds are used to finance repression of the majority or are stolen for private gain by those dictators and military leaders. But who will have to repay those loans? Not the dictators. The citizens of those countries, the majority of whom are poor, will have to repay these loans, the principal and interest, through their taxes. Many countries are forced to spend far more on repaying the loans than on health care and education and other needs of their people. These debts are, quote, so burdensome that poor nations are left with few resources to care for the health and well-being of their citizens. Unable to pay them off, these countries struggle to merely pay the service on the loans, committing themselves to a downward spiral of mounting debt, close quote. Global Loan Sharking Here are some examples. South Africa. During the 1980s, the apartheid regime received loans from private banks, which helped finance the military and police apparatus, which kept the black majority in subjugation. Nicaragua. Anastasio Somoza was a favorite U.S. dictator and stole, depending on which source you trust, somewhere between a hundred and five hundred million dollars. The Congo, formerly Zaire. That nation racked up twelve billion dollars in debt, while the dictator Mobutu Sese Seko diverted up to four billion dollars of that to his personal accounts. Note that the CIA and Mobutu collaborated back in 1961 to murder one of his rivals for power. And, of course, the Philippines. Dictator Ferdinand Marcos, another great U.S. ally, put his country $28 billion in debt to foreign creditors, 
while himself stealing $10 billion of that. This is like racketeering. It's like if a bank kept making huge loans to a corporation when it knew that the CEO was stealing the money, not using it for the benefit of the shareholders. Would anyone seriously argue that the corporation should be required to repay such a loan to such a bank? There actually is a concept in law called odious debt. What that means is, quote, in most countries, individuals do not have to repay money that others fraudulently borrow in their name. Similarly, a corporation is not liable for contracts that the chief executive officer enters without the authority to bind the firm. But international law does not exempt citizens of a dictatorship from repaying a debt incurred by a dictator for personal and nefarious purposes. Close quote. The odious debt argument has been successfully invoked by the United States at the end of the Spanish-American War in 1898 to repudiate Cuba's debt and by the Soviet Union in 1921 to repudiate the Tsarist debt. It's been invoked over the last decade or so in the international campaign to cancel the third world debt, which is supported by such diverse figures as Bono and the late Pope John Paul II. As Pope John Paul II wrote, in distinctly non-right-wing fashion, quote, The principle that debts must be paid is certainly just. However, it is not right to demand or expect payment when the effect would be the imposition of political choices leading to hunger and despair for entire peoples. It cannot be expected that the debts which have been contracted should be paid at the price of unbearable sacrifices. In such cases, it is necessary to find, as in fact is partly happening, ways to lighten, defer, or even cancel the debt, compatible with the fundamental right of peoples to subsistence and progress. Close quote. Well, let's take a short break. The best stuff is coming up when we return. We'll work for food, we'll die for oil, we'll kill for power, and to us the spoils, the billionaires get to pay less tax, the working poor get to fall through the cracks. So let them eat jelly beans, let them eat cake, let them eat sh whatever it takes. They can join the Air Force or join the Corps if they can't make it here anymore. what we got and if the president wants to admit it or not you can read it in the paper read it on the wall hear it on the wind if you're listening at all get out of that limo and look us in the eye call us on a cell phone tell us all why in Dayton, Ohio or Portland, Maine Now you may be wondering if the third world nations are ripped off in natural resource extraction and in trade rules they must not be taking in much money so how on earth can they repay these huge loans? Enter the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. The World Bank and IMF were set up at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 to manage international trade and finance. Their roles have evolved since then. They are controlled by the U.S., 
and our junior partners in crime. In simplest terms, the World Bank makes loans for development projects which are supposedly designed to reduce poverty but which often, surprise surprise, have the opposite effect. The IMF makes loans to pay back the prior loans. These institutions work in tandem so these two functions are sometimes blurred. What's important here is that in order to get these loans the IMF and World Bank impose economic policy programs on the subject nations. The theory behind these policy programs is called neoliberalism, but there's nothing liberal about this doctrine. It's pure right-wing, kill the poor, enrich the rich economics. Reverse Robin Hood writ large around the world. These neoliberal programs are commonly known as Structural Adjustment Programs, or SAPs. The World Bank prefers the term Poverty Reduction Strategy Paper. Since the SAPs increase, not reduce poverty, this World Bank term is about as dishonest as any right-wing nomenclature. Clear Skies Initiative, anyone? As I always say, Whatever a right-winger says, the opposite is true. Essentially, SAPs require deregulation and the end of any governmental role in assuring the public welfare. What are some of the elements of a SAP? Cut subsidies for basic goods. Many citizens of third world countries depend on these reduced price goods for survival. Too bad. Cut social spending. For example, health care will become unavailable, so some poor people will die. No big deal. Shrink government. Less monitoring of labor and environmental laws and massive unemployment among former governmental workers will result. Privatization. In other words, transferring national assets to private control. Shades of the sweetheart deals we discussed earlier. This will mean more reduction in public services and windfall profit opportunities for government cronies. Elimination of tariffs. Domestic producers will no longer be able to compete with multinationals. Most of the first world nations used tariffs during their own formative years to build themselves up economically. But that tool must be denied to the third world. And finally, let's not forget to add... Eliminate restrictions on foreign ownership of businesses and even natural resources. Put the entire country up for sale. What does all that add up to? A right-winger's economic fantasy. I imagine that regular listeners can recite by heart. Maybe they even hear it in their dreams by now. Or rather, I should say, in their nightmares. This boast by head cheerleader for the right, Rush Limbaugh. Roosevelt is dead. His policies may live on, but we're in the process of doing something about that as well. As you can see, the right-wing effort in this regard extends internationally as well. And the result is the result of all right-wing economic policy on the international level. The rich get richer, and the poor get poorer, and suffer and die. Quote, for over 25 years, the world has had one answer for countries that find themselves in a financial crisis. 
take the IMF policy medicine and get on the debt treadmill that comes with IMF and World Bank loans. This path has worked very well for big corporations in wealthy countries which walk into countries through the doors opened by the IMF's policies and walk out with massive profits. But for the people the IMF and World Bank say they are trying to help, the poor, the results have been very different. In fact, downright disastrous. The IMF has tremendous power. It can tell all other creditors to cut a country off if its orders are disobeyed. So it is no surprise that governments comply with its demands. Neither should it be surprising that when a government lays off workers, sells off companies to foreigners, cuts spending on nurses and teachers, cuts the subsidies poor farmers and consumers rely on, privatizes essential services like health care and water provision, and makes credit unavailable to small businesses, in other words, following IMF instructions, the result is deeper poverty, worsening health indicators, growing illiteracy, and an economy reduced to providing raw materials and cheap labor to multinational corporations. Close quote. In other words, the right-wing agenda. Now, since these nations are already so impoverished, you can imagine that the effect of these saps is truly devastating. For example, in Zimbabwe, quote, Spending per head on health care in Zimbabwe fell by a third from 1990 to 1996 when an IMF-imposed structural adjustment program was introduced. UNICEF reported that in just three years under the program, the quality of health services had declined by 30%. Twice as many women were dying in childbirth in hospitals, and fewer people were visiting clinics and hospitals because they could not afford user fees. Such structural adjustment programs require nations to drastically cut budgets, particularly in social services, and to increase fees on impoverished users as conditions of receipt of loans or reductions in debt. Close quote. In Venezuela, under IMF dictates, poverty rose exponentially. It stood at 18 to 28 percent in the early 1980s. It jumped to 65 or even 85 percent right before Hugo Chavez was elected on an anti-IMF economic platform. No wonder he won the election. The vast majority of the population had been impoverished under the IMF policies adopted by the traditional Venezuelan political parties. Going from individual nations to broader statistics, the World Bank IMF regimen can also clearly be seen to have been a disaster. Speaking of the World Trade Organization, whose policies mirror the SAPs imposed by the IMF and World Bank, two experts recently wrote, quote, Instead of promised gains, economic conditions for the majority have deteriorated. The number and percentage of people living on less than $1 a day in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East have increased while the percentage living on less than $2 a day has increased in these regions, as well as in Latin America and the Caribbean. Growth and the rate of poverty reduction have slowed in most parts of the world since implementation of the WTO's policy package, a model imposed a decade earlier on many developing countries by the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. In Africa, per capita income, 
which is an economy's total output divided by its population, grew around 40% from 1960 to 1980, but actually shrank more than 10% from 1980 to 1998. In Latin America, from 1960 to 1980, average per capita income grew by 82%. That's over 4% per year per person. However, during the era in which governments in the region began implementing policies of corporate globalization from 1980 to 2000, income per person grew only 9% in total, less than one-half of 1% per person per year." Close quote. Interestingly, by doing the opposite of SAP-type policies, China did achieve poverty reduction and strong economic growth. Quote, the economic policies that China employed to obtain its dramatic growth and poverty reduction are a veritable smorgasbord of WTO violations. High tariffs to keep out imports and significant subsidies and government intervention to promote exports. Government-owned, operated and subsidized energy, transportation and manufacturing sectors tightly regulated foreign investment with numerous performance requirements regarding domestic content and technology transfer, government-controlled finance and banking systems, and government-controlled, subsidized and protected agriculture. Many of these same policies are those employed by the now wealthy countries during their own period of development." Close quote. I repeat, many of these policies are those employed by the now wealthy countries during their period of development. How hypocritical can we get? All this pillage of the third world dating back to colonial times means that today a mere 25% of the world's population receives 75% of the income and the richest 20% of the world's people monopolize 86% of global wealth. In other words, 80% of humanity must try to survive on a mere 14% of the world's wealth. To look at it in perhaps more comprehensible terms, dividing up $10 among 10 people in the same proportions as global wealth would produce two people with $4.30 each and eight people with 18 cents each. As if matters weren't bad enough, the situation is getting worse and worse. The income gap between the richest 10% of people in the world and the poorest 10% increased by nearly 39% from 1970 to 1997. Just how the right wing likes it. Now again, I remind you as I did at the beginning, Third world poverty means people, especially children, suffer and die. In the United States, our economy is so big that even those at the bottom usually have the necessities of life. But not so in the third world. The pie is small there. Small slices of it, let alone the crumbs that are the usual fare of the poor, do not sustain life. Unfortunately, Right-wingers act like the Earth's resources are the subject of some frivolous global game of monopoly 
where the rules allow you to amass and keep as much wealth as possible, and when the losers get wiped out, the only consequences are they get up and leave the table. No, it's most definitely not a game of Monopoly. It's a matter of life and death. The rules of the game of Monopoly are not the rules the use of the Earth's resources should be subject to. Back in 2001, when I first began presenting my views online, I wrote the following. It could have been written in 1951, or 1901, or 1851, or any year you want to go back through to the beginning of time. Here's what I wrote. Do you recall the definition of colonialism we all learned in grade school? A system designed to extract wealth from the colony and transfer it to the mother country. Three bottom line questions. One, aren't the major G8 powers essentially the same countries which ran the world during the period of 19th and 20th century colonialism? Two, can we assume that there has been no major revolution in human ethics since then which would now inhibit the economically powerful from exploiting the weak? And three, Hasn't the income and wealth inequality between the Western powers and the former colonies been steadily increasing since the end of the formal colonial era? I believe the answer to all three questions is yes. Despite all the talk of free trade and helping the poor, it is the extraction and transfer of wealth which remains as both goal and result. As the Who sang in their kick-ass song, Won't Get Fooled Again, Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Indeed. Well, that's what I wrote back then. The rich make rules to make themselves richer, not poorer. Way back two centuries ago, Thomas Jefferson understood the purpose of all international relations. Quote, we believe no more in Bonaparte's fighting merely for the liberties of the seas than in Great Britain's fighting for the liberties of mankind. The object is the same, to draw to themselves the power, the wealth, and the resources of other nations. Close quote. As a last resource, I want to read you some of an interview with Joseph Stiglitz conducted by New Internationalist magazine. Stiglitz was the World Bank's chief economist from 1997 to 2000. In 2001, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics. So just don't take Jack Clark's word on all you've just heard. Listen to a guy with credentials even a crazed right-winger couldn't deny. Interviewer, you have said that you have been forced to the conclusion that the IMF works in the interest of Western capital. This seems a remarkable view for a former chief economist of the World Bank. Stiglitz, I watched carefully what the IMF had done the mistakes that it had made in crisis countries in East Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the economies in transition. The mistakes were sufficiently frequent that they clearly weren't just an accident. As an academic, you look for patterns. Their objective in going into a country was not, for example, to keep employment as high as possible or to minimize poverty. Their interests were to make sure the creditors got paid. That took precedence over what would be good for the country. Occasionally, I almost got them to say that explicitly. For instance, senior people would say, 
we can't have bankruptcies or standstills, that would be an abrogation of the sanctity of the debt contract. And I'd say, well, what about the social contract? Interviewer, you've gone as far to talk about the free market fundamentalism of the IMF. Stiglitz, one of the reasons why I was so sensitive to some of these controversies is that I had previously chaired President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors. Free market economists on the right in the United States were saying, we want to privatize Social Security. We looked at the numbers and saw that the transaction costs in a public Social Security program are much lower than in a private one. And the private sector doesn't provide insurance against inflation. It doesn't protect people against the volatility of the stock market. There are strong arguments for having at least a core public social security program. I go to the World Bank and find our sister institution, the IMF, is pushing countries the world over to privatize their social security systems. Going from a public system to a private one is very difficult, and there are enormous budget constraints. The IMF ignored those, and that was one of the main problems in Argentina and Bolivia, close quote. Stiglitz went on to make clear the right-wing onslaught was not just limited to Social Security. Quote, What I saw happening when I started dealing with the IMF was the same battles that I had fought inside the Clinton administration against the Republicans. It was intellectually dishonest and many of the things that they pushed had no research basis to them at all. For instance, capital market liberalization was the source of the instability in East Asia. I said before the meeting in Hong Kong where they forced that through, shouldn't you have evidence to show this is good for economic growth? Okay, it's good for Wall Street, but your mandate is not making profits for Wall Street. It should be to increase global stability and promote growth in developing countries. Where is the evidence? None. Their hospital is one where people get sicker. We saw in East Asia, Latin America, Russia, and Africa how they made things worse. Unequivocally. If they had fully followed the IMF advice, the patient would have been much sicker. In East Asia, the country that did not take IMF advice, Malaysia, had the shortest and shallowest downturn and the least legacy of debt. The country that was best in managing the IMF in some way, Korea, recovered the fastest. The countries that took the medicine, Thailand and Indonesia, had the worst performance. Close quote. A hospital where people get sicker. In other words, a right-wing hospital. Any right-wing proposal that purports to solve a social justice problem will inevitably make the problem worse. And people will suffer and die. So there you have it. Sweetheart exploitative deals with the multinationals and unfair international trade rules ensure that third world nations make very little money. Fraudulent loans to dictators who use the money for personal political and financial gain but which the poor majority must repay. The need to repay these loans makes these nations even more desperate for additional funding. The conditions that are imposed by the IMF and World Bank for additional loans increase poverty, suffering, and death. Listen to this before you go. 
A sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. These are revolutionary times all over the globe. Men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression, and out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. Martin Luther King Jr. would ask each and every one of you who is listening to me now, which side are you on? You almost don't even have to ask your friendly local right-wingers which side they're on. We already know the answer to that. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right on PodcastAlley.com. There's a one-click link to do each of those on the podcast homepage. The podcast homepage can be reached by typing in Blast the Right in Google where the first result. About that Podcast Alley voting, I'm happy to say we just cracked the 2,000 barrier in subscribers. I'm happy about that. On the other hand, it seems to me I'm only getting about 150 votes every month, Less than 1 out of 10 subscribers. We can do better than that. A special shout out to all you Red Dragon 365 listeners. Come on over to the podcast homepage, subscribe for free, and you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. Music credits. The bumper music was We Can't Make It Here by James McMurtry. We'll end the podcast with a bit of No Justice, No Peace by Wacky Avelli. Links to all the music I play on the podcast can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Special thanks to Tom Hartman for the Rush Limbaugh audio clip. I love getting all your comments. It amazes me they just keep getting better and better and better. Send them to rational at adelphia.net. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also Skype me. My name there is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. What matters, hell?